This is Genesis chapter 37, starting reading at verse 1. And as we read, we remember this is God's word. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colours. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves all stood around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun and moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he, sent, so he said to him, Here I am. And he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks. And bring back word to me. So he sent him out to the valley of Hebron. And he went down to Shechem. Now a certain man found him and he was wandering in the field and the man asked him saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. The man said, they have departed from here for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to him, said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness and do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers 
that they stripped Joseph of his tunic and the tunic of many colours that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming down from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the tunic of many colours. And they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognised it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him to, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Amen. We thank God for this reading from his truth. And we're going to pray now and ask for God's help to understand it. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. As we've just thought about with the boys and girls, it teaches us who you are. It teaches us what is required of us. It's our instructions. It's the maker's manual for life in this world and the world to come. And so we pray that you would help us as we seek to understand this story of Joseph and his brothers and that you would point us to Christ as we do so. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, folks, I don't need you to answer this question out loud, but I wonder if any of you here have any skeletons in your family closet. Are there any relationships or people in your family that make things a wee bit awkward? Maybe somebody or or something that when it comes up in conversation kind of makes you a wee bit embarrassed to talk about it. You just want to end the conversation at that point. Or maybe it's something that's happened in the past and it not only causes you discomfort but actually 
causes you pain and it's too difficult to revisit it. Families are funny old things. We don't choose our family for ourselves. God places us in a family. But they can be difficult. They can be awkward. And sometimes, very sadly, families can even be hurtful. As we return today to the book of Genesis and begin to delve into this story of Joseph, what we see very, very quickly is that family difficulties have long been the way things are for the people of God. If you have skeletons in your family closet, well, then you're in good company. Because here we have Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his family, and it's full of difficulty from the outset. But what we see in the middle of all of these difficult relationships and indeed evil actions is that God is still at work. God is working in this family. And particularly through his servant Joseph, God is working to bring about the salvation of his people. I think this is an important lesson for us today to to learn because because we, we know that God's people come under attack. God's people come under pressure. And we see that in our own day. We see persecution across the world. We, we only need to open an internet browser and look for it. Our brothers and sisters in Christ across this world are being persecuted for their faith. In the last week, churches have been set on fire in northern Nigeria, resulting in the death of a 25-year-old student. And that is simply one story that carries on across the world. God's people are under attack simply because of what they believe. We see it too in our own country. Perhaps it's a little more subtle and less extreme. Christians have been arrested in the United Kingdom for praying silently outside of abortion clinics. There is new speech legislation in the Republic of Ireland which has the potential to curtail preachers. I'm sure you have all heard about the recent survey in the Times, a survey that declared that not even the Church of England clergy think that England is a Christian country any longer. Now that's something that's been obvious to a blind man on a galloping horse for years. We all feel the squeeze, don't we? We feel it personally in our own lives. Maybe it's just that we don't say as much as we once would have in the company of our family, our friends, our neighbours, or our colleagues at work or in school. There's just this fear, maybe, of being picked up wrongly and causing offence. We're all aware that a biblical worldview is no longer acceptable in the society we live in. And I want, as a bit of an aside, to say something about that issue. I think it might be helpful uh, from the pulpit to say something about the guidance that has been issued by the Department of Education or is to be issued by the Department of Education around the RSE provision in our schools. I'm sure you've heard about this. I've already said something about it in midweek. It is clear that our preference as Christian people would be that our children are taught a Christian worldview in our schools. 
And we have to be very grateful to God for the fact that we do have many Christian teachers and principals and governors in our schools. And not to mention that there is an open door in schools for ministers like me to take assemblies and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls across the country. But there is an element of secularization going on. And it is true that guidance is due to be issued following a time of consultation. And particularly worrying about this guidance is in regard to its teaching around abortion and access to abortion, which I'm sure we in the church would oppose. But there has also been quite a lot of misinformation. And to that, I simply want to urge you to be cautious about what you're hearing and what you believe. There are things going on in schools, perhaps, that we would not be happy with. But some of the more extreme rumours are mere rumours and are not helpful because they have the potential to diminish any influence that we do have. I don't want to say much more than that this morning. And I do know that some of you are worried about this and, and rightly so. I think it's right that we should be worried about it, about what's being taught in our schools. If you want to think a wee bit further about how to engage with this, please let me know. I can point you in the direction of some events that are happening around the country, uh, some things that that might be helpful for you to read about that. But all of this is to to paint a larger picture. It's to paint a picture of what we see when we look at the world around us. The church is shrinking. And it's, it's shrinking in its size and in its influence on the culture. The world is becoming increasingly hostile. And it begs the question, where is God in all of this? Where is God when his church is being pressed and squeezed and crushed? Well, the big lesson of our story today is that regardless of the wickedness and evil of man, God is always at work. God is always at work at work, even if it doesn't seem immediately obvious to us. Let's start by looking at the story together. If you look at verse 2 of chapter 37, you'll see that this is given as the history of Jacob. The word instead of history we might use here is the word generations or genealogy, and we've seen that before in the book of Genesis. We've already looked over the last number of years at the genealogy of Adam and Noah and Abraham. Each story in the book of Genesis is told as the history of the the patriarch of that family. And so as a bit of an aside, but I think it links in, I think it's important when we think about these issues, is that isn't it wonderful to notice from the book of Genesis in the beginning that God deals with his people as families. This is why we count ourselves in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland in families. It's so important to pass on these stories, the lessons, the truths that they contain to our children. Because the whole story of Joseph is not given as the story of Joseph. It's given as the history of his father. Think about that. Fathers especially think about that. The goodness of God to his people is seen in a family history. In the church, 
We shouldn't think of ourselves as individuals. The, the New Testament makes it clear that we belong to one another in the church. But all the more when we come as part of a family. Parents and grandparents, you have a responsibility for your family. To ensure that they learn the goodness of God, his strength and his might and the salvation that is available through Jesus. Last week's Presbytery Academy, for those who were there, was about baptism. And didn't it help us think this through a little bit? Children are a gift from God. And in the past, in this place, in these pews that you're sitting in, children have been a wonderful church growth strategy. If we want to see our congregation flourish in the future, and I know we do, we need to make sure that our children are in the church, that they know their identity as Christian people, and that they will stay with us here in this place. God deals with families. And that's one strategy, one way we can think about countering the pressure that we're feeling from the outside. Back to the story of Joseph and his brothers. We have this family coming in the generations of God's people in the line of Abraham and Isaac. And now we come to Jacob and his 12 sons. And hopefully you'll remember from this time last year what the author of Genesis points out in verse 2. The 12 sons didn't have the same mother. There were different mothers. And you'll remember some of the the contention between Rachel and Leah as well as their slaves girls, Bilhah and Zilpah. The tension that exists in the mothers continues with the sons. Joseph is young compared to his other brothers, but he is Jacob's favourite. And so his brothers hated him. And Joseph does nothing to ease their hatred. We learn that he brought his father a bad report about them. Joseph is a telltale. Further to this, he expounds to them these dreams that he's had, which undoubtedly are true and from God. But couldn't he have dealt with them a little more sensitively? Rather than speaking humbly, Joseph is full of pride. And so the brothers are clearly acting wickedly in this passage. There's no doubt about that. But Joseph isn't perfect either. He acts foolishly. He's, he's a bit of a selfish jerk at times. Equally, the fact that Jacob had a favourite, well, that's not particularly godly, is it? So there isn't really any person in this family who's acting in a Christ-like manner. Yet, as we have said, regardless of the wickedness and evil of men, God is always at work. Friends, I want you to let that be an encouragement to you today. It might not sound like it. Let me put it this way. If you knew my heart the way that I know my heart, you would be aware of just how wicked and sinful I am. And I'm sure we could say the same about you. And yet this chapter of God's word comes to us today and it encourages us that even through you and me, God is at work. God can use us. And in his providence, he does use us. If God didn't use sinners, he would have nobody left. He chooses to use weak and sinful people like us to spread his word, to share his gospel, to build his kingdom. And I think that's wonderful. It's good news for me. 
want to encourage you with that thought today. Perhaps you know that we need volunteers for the Sunday school. Or maybe there's something else like the communicants classes and you're thinking to yourself, well, that might be for me when I get myself sorted. Whenever I get my act together and I start acting the right way. But acting the right way is not the criteria that God uses. God wants people who will admit they are sinners and trust in the righteousness of Christ. What we find is that as we fall more and more upon the righteousness of Christ in our place, on our behalf, well then we actually begin to act the right way. I want you to be encouraged today. If you think you're not good enough, that's the beginning of realising how much you need Jesus. You don't need to be good enough. Regardless of the wickedness and evil of men, God is always at work. He can and he will work through you. He will use you for the building of his kingdom. What matters for you is whether you are engaged in that or not. Will you step forward in faith in Christ and know and acknowledge that God is using you? Don't be put off things because you don't feel good enough. Instead, pray that God would use you and through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, that he would make you fit for the task that he has called you to. As we read on in Genesis 37, it's as if the wickedness increases. Envy and jealousy consume Joseph's brothers and they hatch an evil plot. Isn't Isn't it horrible to read verses 19 and 20? The brothers say to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, and let us now kill him and cast him into a pit. And then we'll lie about it. We'll say that some wild beast has devoured him. We'll see what becomes of his dreams then. Vindictive, evil, wicked. This is within the people of God, the church of God. People plotting to destroy another member of the church. Don't know if we can imagine that. Maybe we can. Thankfully, Reuben has some sense, although he's still working to please the other brothers. And so Joseph ends up in the pit. He's alive, but he's stripped of his cloak. He's beaten and he has no food or water. And at this point, surely we see God's intervening hand. It was no mere coincidence that a company of Ishmaelites was passing by on their way to Egypt. God is at work. He's at work among his people and the nations. God is controlling all of these events in the background. It can be the same for us when we see or we seem to see coincidences in our lives. Perhaps we shouldn't be so quick to put them down to luck. Instead, let's look for the intervening hand of God. God is always at work. Despite the evil of the brothers selling Joseph as a slave, which is, by the way, the same wickedness as human trafficking is in our day. It's, it's a horrible evil. So they sell him to these Midianites. And the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, take Joseph to Egypt. Those of us who have read on in the story, we, we know how significant that's going to be. God is always at work. And so, while to the brothers this might seem like a convenient happenstance... 
It's always the work of a good God working for the salvation of his people. A God who knows what's coming in the future. A God who knows that in many years there will be a famine in the land. But that having Joseph in the right place at the right time will lead to the saving of many lives. Joseph will be in Egypt to save his brothers. To save their families and many, many others. Joseph will save them from an early death due to starvation. And instead he will give them fullness and wholeness in the land of Egypt. This is amplified because again, without God's name being mentioned, God is at work. The very last verse of of our passage, verse 36. The Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. Who is Potiphar? Well, he's a significant man. An officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. That's an important detail. God is working in the background here. It looks as if it's a coincidence, but it's not a coincidence. God is always at work. God is manoeuvring this selfish and proud young man, Joseph, in just the right place and at just the right time to carry forward God's plans and purposes. Friends, again, I want to encourage you with that today because the same is true for you. God doesn't make mistakes. There are no such thing as coincidences. If God was able to place Joseph in Egypt at just the right time, so he has you here today in the place where you live for his plans and purposes. God is at work in your life. Only you, you are the only person who can do the good works that God has laid before you to do. He has you here and now for a reason. I don't want you to ignore that. Open your eyes. Allow God to use you in this place. In this time where he has put you. Well, Back to these brothers. Of course they're now left with the question of what to tell their father. And so they kill a goat. They dip Joseph's tunic in blood. And they tell their father he's dead. And this is a really interesting part of the story. There are so many connections to Christ here. Not only is God preparing salvation of Jacob's family in years to come in Egypt, but God is working here to bring about the salvation of all of his people from all times through Jesus. We learn something of the work of Christ here. The the goat dies in Joseph's place. A goat's life is given for Joseph's life and so it is with Jesus, the Lamb of God who gives his life in the place of all who trust in him. Look at Reuben's reaction when he goes to the pit and the pit is empty. Doesn't that sound a lot like those who went to the empty tomb looking for Jesus? We see something of the betrayal of Jesus in this passage. Joseph is betrayed by the ones who who should have loved and protected him the most, his brothers. But instead, they hand him over to evil men for the price of a few silver coins. Doesn't that point us to what Judas does with Jesus? It probably points us, each one of us, to the ways in which we would sooner have our own means met than give them up for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. There are wonderful parallels between Joseph and Christ. Another is the fact that 
that Jacob believes his son is dead. And yet, when the words that the angel spoke to Mary at the tomb of Jesus have been great hope and comfort to Jacob on that day. Jacob hearing those words, he is not dead. It seems as if he should be dead. All the evidence points to death. But Joseph isn't dead. We know that. So it is with Christ. He is not dead. But unlike Joseph, Jesus did die. Jesus was dead, yet he has risen. He has risen for death to no longer hold power or sway over any who follow him. Friends, all through this passage, there are pointers to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the salvation that only he brings. Joseph will be able, eventually we'll hear it in the story, to save his family from an early death. But Jesus, and only Jesus, can save from an eternal death. Even in those pointers, we see God laying the groundwork for his great act of salvation through his son. So we can look back and say, it didn't look like it at the time. Here here we have this this bunch of sinful people, a father showing favoritism, a a son who is selfish and proud, a bunch of jealous brothers, some unwitting Ishmaelite traitors, an Egyptian official. But through all these wicked and evil men, God is always at work. And so as we look around us today, it does seem like the church is being pressed and, and squeezed its shrinking from the inside out. It's losing any clout or capital it ever had in the public spheres of education and healthcare and just the general morality of our nation. We look around and it begs the question, where is God? Where is God in all of this? The answer of his word today is that regardless of the wickedness and evil of men, God is always at work. God is always at work in your life and in my life, working for your salvation through the Lord Jesus. Will you put your hope and your trust in him today? Let me pray for us. Let's pray.